0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: If I come to your home and ask to borrow your lawnmower, you might agree saying, well, gee, I've got two of them. Why don't you go ahead and take one? We might call that gifting or donating. Conversely, though, if I come to your home, say, in the middle of the night and look in your garage and see your lawnmower and simply take it, that would be called stealing. Using that same paradigm or example when we talk about medical ethics... Let's use an example, perhaps, where you're sick in a hospital bed, and I, as a physician, determine, in my opinion, that your life is of no more value than being dead, and I go and help myself to a kidney or liver and more. While that used to be called murder, today it's called presumed consent. It is the topic of our discussion this afternoon as we're joined in studio by Wesley Smith, He's a senior fellow with the Discovery Institute, the author of a number of best-selling books, including Culture of Death, The Assault on Medical Ethics in America. He's a very prolific blogger. You can get information, by the way, on his blog, Secondhand Smoke, online. Also get information about his book online at Wesley J. Smith. .com. And Wes, is always great to have you with us. Hey, Craig, good to see you again. It's amazing the way times change that the example of the lawnmower that we can all relate to would go from a donation to stealing. And yet you would think that in the one arena where we need to rely on ethics the most, in the arena of medical care, that we would assume that our life would be safe and protected by a profession whose very goal in the very beginning was to
2: protect and preserve life, not to simply help themselves to it. What's changed? Well, what's going on is that healthcare is under a great deal of pressure to destroy the Hippocratic value system, the idea of the intrinsic dignity of human life. Uh, We do not yet have presumed consent in the United States. They do have it in some other countries, such as Spain. Uh, And it goes something like this, that uh, if you uh, go into a hospital and we'll just say you die, you are presumed to have said you wanted to be an organ donor unless you specifically opted out. Therefore, they would then have the right to, uh, after you were dead, uh, hopefully, but that's also a question these days, uh, to harvest your organs. In the United States, we have what's called an opt-in system. Uh, For example, on my driver's license currently, I have a dot on my license that says that if I'm dead, and I mean like the wicked witch of the West, really, really dead, dead, um, that I want to be an organ donor. That's an opt-in system. Uh, if you end up with an uh, presumed consent opt-out, it would say the the only what you'd have to have on your driver's license would be a dot saying I'm not an organ donor. This is a small piece of a much bigger issue. What has happened is that there the the organ donor and the organ uh, patient lines have grown. Why have they grown? A couple of reasons. Number one. It's an unintended consequence of the increased safety that things like helmet laws and airbags and things have done. There are fewer traumatic head injuries than there used to be because we have a greater uh, safety system in place that that prevent uh, bicycle helmets, this kind of thing. Secondly, organ transplant medicine, which has provided tremendous benefit for people, has improved so that there are now actually more conditions and more circumstances under which people could benefit from organ donation. So the lines have grown. The problem is that people look at these growing lines, and some of them, particularly in secular bioethics, are beginning to say, well, look at all those people that uh, that are waiting for organs, and yet you've got people like Terry Shiva, will say. Uh, who may be cognitively profoundly disabled. And uh, and some are actually beginning to say, not using her by name, but I'm using her as an example everybody recalls. Well, gee, the person in line who could go out and play football after getting the liver needs that liver more than Terry Shivo. And so there is an urgency now in many of the professional journals, for example, for things like presumed consent, which we don't have in this country for permission to kill cognitively disabled people for their organs, what they call redefining death uh, to include a diagnosis. We'll say of persistent unconsciousness, this kind of thing. That's also not yet happening. But the reason Craig, that I write so much about these issues, the reason I try to push them up into the public's focus is because if We cast a light on these proposals, which people I believe will reject. They will never happen. But if we allow this advocacy to continue as it is in many of the world's most notable professional medical and bioethical journals, and if we allow uh, these advocates who, you know, have good intentions in the sense of trying to save lives, but they're going to do so at the expense, perhaps, of turning some people into mere natural resources, which we can never permit because that creates a a duopoly, if you will, of human worth. Uh, if we do not present, sh- keep showing this, then we might end up with this kind of thing being slipped through. So it is becoming, Wes,
1: then, a, a major ethical trade-off. And as you point out, we're living safer, we're living longer, we have greater medical technology <clears throat> that the ability to harvest and transplant organs and have them take and allow that individual who's in need of said organ to, to go on and live a productive life, all of this is changing I guess what, not, what is not keeping up with these tremendous changes is the whole ethical question and the whole ethical awareness. What, what shocks me, you've made some references to Great Britain, and we'll talk more about this in depth as our conversation develops today. But it's surprisingly in that if we talked about our nearest relatives, we might look at our forefathers in Great Britain and say, we with them, morally and ethically, have the most in common, and yet here they apparently are on this fast track toward the so-called uh, implied content, uh, consent that really isn't
2: consent at all. Yes, the uh, British Medical Association is pushing this. I believe Wales is about to actually implement it. Uh, you also have in, in the U.K. Uh, uh, healthcare rationing because they have a socialized medical system, and they have uh, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence called NICE, which is uh, not-so-nice. Uh, and in fact, I I haven't read the novels, but I understand that C. S. Lewis actually kind of had a prophetic uh, bad guy agency called Nice in some of his novels. But uh, Nice uh, is a healthcare rationer, and you have cost benefit analysis in the United Kingdom as to who should and should not receive. Uh, Healthcare or certain treatments. Let me give you an It's called the quality adjusted life year. And it gets very complicated, but I can explain it in a simplified nutshell. I mean, it's more complicated than what I'm going to say, but this is the rough idea. Let's say you and I have the same circumstance. And uh, there's a treatment that will give each of us five years of life with this treatment. Let's say that you will have five years of life, able-bodied and vigorous. But for me, because of other circumstances, my five years of life will be bedridden. Under the quality adjusted life year, your treatment would be worth five years and mine might be worth two years because I have a lower, quote, quality of life because I'm bedridden, which is obviously an invidious judgment. Then you take the cost of that care and they might say, well, gee, the call, let's say it's $100,000. Again, I'm just throwing out figures. It's worth a five-year, $100,000 for Craig to have five years of quality-adjusted life years. But we don't think it's worth Wesley being paid his treatment $100,000 for two quality-adjusted life years. Therefore, under that hypothetical illustration, you would get the treatment and I would be denied the treatment. Suddenly makes the insurance company... um Charts and tables, the actuary tables, look pretty pretty evil and insidious. Now, consider Obamacare and the, the Affordable Care Act. There will be, if the law remains in effect after 2012, cost-benefit boards established. There's something called the Indepayment Indipay- Payment Advisory Board, which is a super bureaucracy in terms of cutting health care costs for Medicare. The New England Journal of Medicine has proposed that we, in the United States, adopt the quality-adjusted life year. We don't have it yet, but it has been proposed. We do have some formal health care rationing in the United States. Oregon is a classic example. Oregon rations health care on Medicaid. It says, uh, let's say there's 750 various procedures and treatments and maladies to be that are on a list. And they will cover uh, the first so many depending on their budget. So let's say it's 650. If you are 650 or less, Medicaid will pay for that treatment. If you are 651 or more, it won't. And so that number adjusts. But, but for example, in 2008, a woman named Barbara Wagner had recurrent lung cancer. She was terminally ill, and the doctor prescribed for her Uh, that she received chemotherapy, not to save her life, but to extend it nine months a year. And that's all legitimate, obviously part of cancer treatment. It's efficacious. It it adds life. uh, If people want that, the state of Oregon wrote her a letter saying, no, we will not pay for your chemotherapy because it is not likely to extend your life five years. But guess what? Assisted suicide is legal. We will pay for that. They wrote her that letter. And there was another fellow named Randy Stroops who had recurrent prostate cancer, similar circumstance. They wrote him a similar letter. That's what can happen when you lose the concept of the sanctity and intrinsic equality and dignity of human life in healthcare. So we've made then suddenly,
1: Wesley, this shift from ethics and morals and values and the family making those kinds of decisions and ultimately the individual to suddenly now turning this over to a committee. This is a bean counter who looks at this and says, based on the actuary tables, quality of life, our budget, what we think your life is worth, we either will or will not provide these particular
2: uh, medical procedures. And that's the real danger here. And with uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, the entire, as we've seen in the recent uh, birth control controversy, the entire focus of what will be covered and what will not be covered has been centralized into the federal bureaucracy. That bill was 2,000 pages long, approximately. It will generate over 100,000 pages of regulations of the kind that we just saw with regard to trying to force Catholic organizations uh, to pay for birth control. Of course, that was never a... a, uh, an issue that was anything other than the free exercise of religion. Suddenly now we have a bureaucrat back in
1: Washington, D.C., who's deciding whether or not your father's life is of any value. Let's pause on that point. If you've just joined us, our conversation today with Wesley Smith, senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. He's the author of a number of best-selling books, including Culture of Death, The Assault on Medical Ethics in America. We're talking about a very troubling emergence of a shift in bioethics that that largely is taking place in Great Britain today, but it seems to be communicating sort of a preview of coming attractions here in America. Many of these critical questions that, most importantly, we as the church need to be on the leading edge of, not following behind. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation, get a better sense of what this presumed consent means and how soon before it shows up here in America. I'm Craig Roberts. This edition of Lifeline continues right here on KFAX.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Again, we're joined today in studio by Wesley Smith, Senior Fellow at the Discovery Institute, a number of best-selling books, including Culture of Death, The Assault on Medical Ethics in America. You can read Wesley's Musings and Secondhand Smoke, available online. Details, too, at WesleyJSmith.com. Wes, before the break, we were talking about some of the emergence of, of a new paradigm that's taking place in the medical profession. Uh, this this idea that they are now using actuary tables and committees and bureaucrats that are making life decisions that heretofore were basically allowed to be a very private, personal matter between the individual whose life we're discussing here and the family. Now all of a sudden, a nameless, faceless bureaucrat thousands of miles away is making decisions based on a couple of facts, no more than that, most of it based on how likely do I think you'll continue to live how productive of a life will you lead, sometimes maybe even including how much of a taxpayer will you continue to be, and then whether or not we're willing to pay the freight on your behalf. And it's troubling that we're even down to making these kinds of decisions. It almost seems as if the Hippocratic Oath has become a hypocritical one.
2: (laughs) Hey, nice line. Um, Doctors don't take the Hippocratic Oath anymore. Uh, It's very sad, but it's true. Uh, What medical schools have done is watered it completely down. So it's basically pablum. For example, uh, they did away with the prohibition and the Hippocratic Oath on abortion. They did away with the prohibition in the Hippocratic Oath on assisted suicide, which is very clear. And realize, people say, well, that's forcing Christianity on people. Hippocrates was about 500 years before Christ. So there was an understanding, even in ancient Greece, that the very unique place of the doctor requires the doctor. and, And what's so remarkable about the Hippocratic Oath is that the doctor is to give the same kind of optimal care, not only to the master, but also to the slave. Now, think about that in ancient Greece where slaves, you know, were ubiquitous and that really, uh, you know, that they were, you could do basically almost anything with a slave. And yet under Hippocratic school of medicine, the slave was to receive the same level of of treatment from the doctor as the master.
1: So now we've gone from do no harm to suddenly there's do no harm semicolon with some kind of qualifier to follow.
2: Well, Well, and think about. How, uh, in the last, in my lifetime, I'm 62. In my lifetime, when I was a young man, for a doctor to commit an abortion or to to participate in assisted suicide would not have only been a crime, but would have been considered profoundly unethical uh, by the medical professions. Today, in Victoria, Australia, if you're a doctor, and a patient approaches you and says, I want an abortion. And you have a, met, a moral or religious objection to abortion. You can't just say, I'm sorry, I don't do that. You must go out and find a doctor. You must procure the doctor uh, to do that for you. In other words, no medical conscience. In the Netherlands, the Dutch Medical Association, where euthanasia is legal, the Dutch Medical Association has now passed ethical rules saying that if a patient approaches a doctor and is legally qualified to be killed medically, euthanasia, and the doctor has a moral objection, that doctor can't just say, no, I won't kill you. That doctor must find a doctor who will kill you. And by the way, in the Netherlands, that same ethical uh document which you can find if you do a research on my blog secondhand smoke the dutch medical association told doctors it was perfectly acceptable if a patient came in who wanted to be killed and was not qualified for euthanasia under the law to send them to how to commit suicide sites think about that in switzerland They have suicide clinics where people fly to from all around the world. It's called in the vernacular suicide tourism, where for a price, people can be made dead through assisted suicide. In Switzerland, because they've given up on the intrinsic dignity of human life, intrinsic Dignity has been accorded in the Constitution to plants, to individual plants. And so a, I'm not kidding, you're giving me this look. I'm sorry, I wish I were making this up. I'm not making this up. I wish I were writing a, a novel. It's not a novel. They had, a, the, the Swiss government appointed a bioethics commission to determine what is it about plants that give them intrinsic dignity, And it it kind of came back to an old joke I've I've often told Uh, when I've been in debates with people who say like neo-Darwinists who say, well, you know, species distinctions are all a fiction. We all evolved out of the same primordial ooze. We all have uh, shared genes and so forth. And I, I would always say, well, gee, if you really want to get reductionist carrots are made of carbon molecules and so are human beings so there's no difference between us and carrots that was my joke guess what the basis of intrinsic plant dignity is in switzerland that we share molecular substances so my joke which i thought was wild you can't get ahead of them craig suddenly science is now and it's now the public policy of switzerland meanwhile last point While you have suicide clinics in Switzerland, it's against the law to flush a live goldfish down the toilet. This is what comes when you deny human exceptionalism, when you reject the intrinsic dignity, the sanctity of human life, you start eating your own tail, and I think you go a bit crazy. You make
1: reference to Darwinian theory. My mind flashes, flashes back to the science of eugenics, which was widely endorsed by the medical community a century ago. The pseudoscience of eugenics. Pseudoscience, thank you. Um, certainly a lot of this based on junk science, to be sure, a good dose of racism. Uh, we <laughs> yeah. saw a, a tremendous stamp of approval on the work of Margaret Sanger
2: and her efforts in and the arena. And it was a progressive agenda, not a conservative. Very much so. And, and, and we
1: saw the endorsement of Sanger's work by none less than Adolf Hitler himself. We can draw our own conclusions from that. What is the difference between that branch of pseudoscience a 100 years ago and what we're seeing today with so-called presumed consent
2: in England? Well, one had to do with supposed scientific distinctions between human beings. But what it really got down to was an ethical issue. Eugenics rejected the intrinsic sanctity of human life. It created invidious distinctions between the so-called fit, and the so-called unfit. And does not this also do the same thing? We are in an era of new eugenics in which we are beginning to create different classifications of human life in terms of quality of life judgmentalism. Now, the old eugenics preached its poison with hate. The new eugenics pre- preaches its poison with compassion. But if you get past the justifications, you're beginning to see some of the same old discrimination uh, moving forward. Now, not, you know, not based on morals as much, but based on quality of life, capacities, and things of this sort.
1: Isn't a lot of this, west though, just manipulation of, of terminology here? I mean, we, for example, 10 years ago, we were talking about global warming. Today, it's climate change. Uh, what years ago used to be considered to be suicide and, and the, the wrongful taking of life— Today is considered a compassionate medicine.
2: Well, yeah, and and that's how, uh, as we saw from the uh, novel Nineteen Eighty Four, Newspeak, love is hate, right? Mm-hmm. And you end up uh, you can if you you can manipulate the uh, lexicon. Uh, You can win the debate because he who controls the definitions tends to win the debate. The uh, presumed consent issue, for example, has been debated for many years in the U.K. And on my blog today, I pointed out that the, the British Medical Association has now said because they've not been able to win that debate using the term presumed consent, they now say we should call it a soft opt out. So they're changing the terminology again to try to win the debate. Assisted suicide. You see this all the time. The term assisted suicide actually began, in fact, you go back to euthanasia. Euthanasia used to mean good and death in terms of dying a natural death in a state of grace, peaceful and surrounded by your family. Then the people who wanted to allow killing back in the 1890s grabbed that term and said, no, it's mercy killing, euthanasia. They changed the terminology. So people started saying, "Okay, we'll call it euthanasia. And then when they couldn't win based on that terminology, they've now changed it to aid in dying. Oh, yeah. Well, look at the whole debate up in the state of Oregon over this issue. Or death with
1: dignity. Exactly. It's suddenly more from euthanasia to death with dignity. And who wouldn't want to allow an
2: individual to have dignity as they're coming to the end of their life. Of course. So, so even when they change the lexicon and don't win the debate, they then change the lexicon again. And what drives me a little bit crazy is that as soon as, for example, the aid and dying words term, That's been pushed by Compassion and Choices. The idea behind that is, well, if somebody is terminally ill and they want to commit suicide, it's not really suicide, because they're terminally ill, and if they weren't terminally ill, they wouldn't want to commit suicide. And so we can't call it suicide because people may think ill of the person who commits suicide, so now we must call it aid in dying. Almost as soon as they pushed that approach and sent out the press releases, you began seeing in the media aid in dying instead of assisted suicide. Our media jump through the hoops of various advocacy groups, and as soon as an, a lexicon is to be changed, it gets changed. Global warming, as you said, climate change. Assisted suicide, aid in dying. Presumed consent, now soft opt-out. I mean, various things we could go through again and again. And the moral and ethical hoops through which we have to jump
1: to accomplish all of this is unbelievable. I want to pause on that point. If you've just tuned in, Wesley Smith is with us tonight in studio, senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. to get a number of best-selling books out there. We've talked about one today, Culture of Death, The Assault on Medical Ethics in America. You can order that through Amazon.com. More information, too, as well as information on his blog, online at WesleyJSmith.com. We'll take a timeout. When we come back, we'll talk a bit about where the church stands in this forefront of the battle for bioethics. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to The Conversation. This edition of Lifeline with me today in studio is a very special guest. He's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, an author of a number of best-selling books on the issue of bioethics. He's Wesley Smith. Today, we're talking about a number of critical issues that are beginning to uh, to get some attention in the UK, and that rightfully so ought to get some attention here in America, particularly for those um, that ought to be on the, the cutting edge, the front line, so to speak, of this entire debate, whether we talk about it as uh, medical ethics, bioethics, death with dignity, whatever the terminology that we might choose to use, in the end, all of it comes down to the value of life, the sanctity of life, and how exactly... Do we define that? I would think, Wesley, that this would be something for which the church would be just cutting edge, that this is top of mind for us. After all, we understand what's at risk here. We know the Creator. We know the terms under which we were created, and therefore the church ought to be sort of leading the the, the clarion call. And yet I wonder just how aware are people of faith of this slippery slope that we've been experiencing in, in the issue of bioethics over the last decade or so?
2: My experience uh, is that the church is half awake and half asleep, but you also have to understand uh, that we are like fish in water. I mean, we swim in a milieu. Uh, This milieu is hitting us at every turn. Uh, there's also this idea of um, avoiding suffering at all costs that is part of our culture today. And you cannot be in a society, even if you're a part of the church, and not be impacted to some degree by by a lot of this. There's also what I call terminal non-judgmentalism out there, that uh, we're supposedly not having the right to impose our values on others unless you're the federal government imposing birth control on the Catholic church. Uh, So there are times when you will see uh, even people who are uh, devout members of the church saying, well, because I want a particular situation, you know, I should be able to cut this corner. And I think that you've raised, I think, a very important point. There are going there are now things that are legal and there will be things in the future that may be legal that would be uh, against everything that the church stands for. The question then will become. Are people going to refuse to do things that the church says is immoral, even though it might, in, uh, in their view, help them? Mm-hmm. This is going to lead to some very real crises of conscience, and the church is going to have to help people make the right and moral decision, regardless of what might be legal.
1: All right. With that said, let's talk about some of the slippery slope. You refer to the church as fish in the water. Uh, Another example might be the frog in the kettle, that there is the slow, steady erosion, uh, manipulation of what had been the biblical moral standard that suddenly now becomes uh, far more allowable than what used to be permitted. Let me share an example here. Some folks will be familiar with this clip from the 700 Club. This is Pat Robertson responding to a letter that was sent in by one of his listeners Um, regarding a friend whose spouse is suffering from Alzheimer's. Give a listen.
2: Pat, this is Andreas, who says, I have a friend whose wife suffers from Alzheimer's. She doesn't even recognize him anymore, and as you can imagine, the marriage has been rough. My friend has gotten bitter at God for allowing his wife to be in that condition, and now he started seeing another woman. He says that he should be allowed to see other people because his wife, as he knows her, is gone. I'm not quite sure what to tell him. Please help.
1: Oh, that is a terribly hard thing. It is. I hate Alzheimer's. It is one of the most awful things because here's the loved one. This is the woman or man that you have loved for 20, 30, 40 years, and suddenly that person is gone. They're gone. They are gone. So what he says basically is correct, but... I, I know it sounds cruel, but he's, he, if he's going to do something, he should divorce her and start all over again. But, uh, you know, to make sure she has custodial care and somebody looking after her. But
2: isn't that the vow that we take when we marry someone? That it It's yeah, for better, well, for worse, for richer, for poorer. I if, know if
1: you respect that vow, but you say, "Let death do us part. This is the kind of death. I certainly wouldn't put a guilt trip on you. Uh, he says the person who is suffering from Alzheimer's is just gone. Apparently, too, is the the whole ethical foundation on this point. I mean, talk about situational ethics. Yeah, he?
2: that was I, I heard about that when it occurred. And it's just appalling. My uncle died of Alzheimer's. So I know what this is. He's not gone. He's disabled. He's ill. We don't abandon, at least we never used to abandon the ill because it doesn't suit us and doesn't make us happy. And we want to go out to greener pastures. The whole point I thought of marriage and of being uh, in many ways, a Christian is you care for the ill. You do not abandon them so you can go have more fun. She isn't dead. Dying isn't dead. Dying is living. Uh, I just found that from a leader purported leader, of, of the church who once proclaimed himself uh, part of the uh, moral uh, renaissance in this country. It was just an appalling thing. How far removed
1: is an opinion like that from what we're discussing today in the arena of bioethics and the issue of a physician now being able to say, well, you know, at one time we used to consider death um, coronary death. The heart ceases to pump. All body functions shut down. You are now declared clinically dead. We've now broadened this uh, definition to say that, well, we have sort of in degrees of which we are dead. You may be brain dead, still physically functioning, but there's no brain activity. And so now all of a sudden we're broadening this definition for the convenience of saying, well, we can now harvest your organs. Wouldn't you want to do that to help somebody else who's younger and in better health and and for whom the donation of your liver, your heart, your kidney would allow them to enjoy a quality
2: of life that you cannot? Well, you know, brain death is a kind of a um, popularization of what's called death by neurological criteria. And what is required for that uh, is not only the death of... The whole brain, but each and every constituent part of the brain, that doesn't mean every brain cell is is no longer technically living, but it means the brain has completely ceased to function. And uh, as one uh, pro-life neurologist who supports brain death told me, uh, it would be as if somebody were decapitated and and through um, medicine, uh, medical uh, um, machinery, and so forth, that, quote, body can be kept alive for a period of time. Now, that's a bit of a controversy still. There's a fellow named uh, uh, Sherwin Newland, who was a UCLA uh, a neurologist, uh, who once believed that uh, the, the concept of brain death, as I've just described it, uh, was real, and now because he's found a couple of cases of where people were able to be kept on. The, usually the, the brain dead quote unquote person uh, can't be kept on those machines for very long. They begin to deteriorate because everything begins to go out. But you can take the brain, I mean, sorry, the heart out of the body. It has its own nerves and it can beat outside the body too. That doesn't mean that that it's alive in the sense we're talking about. The real problem here isn't for me brain death, assuming proper diagnosis. That's a big if. But let's not go there because we don't have uniform standards. There's just too many qualifiers. Yeah, we don't have uniform standards in this country for diagnosing death by neurological criteria. We don't have universal standards for when a uh, a, a body can be harvested after a what we'll call heart death or the, uh, the cessation of heartbeat that's permanent and irreversible. You now have people saying because there is a bit of, as you pointed out, a bit of a... Um, equivocation in terms of is it really truly dead uh, and most sincerely dead is in The Wizard of Oz. You have people writing articles in some of the most noted journals saying, well, what we told you was dead isn't really dead. Ha ha ha. So now we have to expand the harvestable people uh, to include um, uh, people like Terry shiva Let me give you a couple of quotes on that. And this I this is in an article that is currently up on the dailycaller.com dot com uh which I wrote called The Killing for Organs Pushers and people can get that as this is being uh, uh done today, which is Valentine's Day the fourteenth, as we're doing this. Um this is from the journal Bioethics if a patient opts for voluntary active euthanasia in a society that permits it and then chooses termination via removal of vital organs, it seems clear that no more harm is done to others than if he were terminated by any other means. Now, you might say we would never kill people in terms of euthanasia and then take their organs, would we? They are already doing it in Belgium, where euthanasia is legal. They are writing about it in medical journals. They're going around Europe, and they are doing medical symposia, saying this is a very good way to get organs, because they're not only targeting people who are terminally ill, but people who are profoundly disabled, such as with multiple sclerosis. I found a medical journal describing four cases of euthanasia, followed by organ harvesting from Belgians. Three were disabled with diseases like... um, Multiple sclerosis, and one was mentally ill, who wasn't physically ill at all. And by the way, we were talking about Switzerland before; they've created a constitutional right to assisted suicide for the mentally ill. Let's pause on that
1: point because when we come back, I'm going to
2: have you address the question, Wesley Smith: Is what, where is the
1: moral divide between this point of or fashion of greater good thinking and what was being done by Dr. Mengele in Auschwitz in the 1930s and 40s? We'll pause. back to more of our conversation. We're talking today about a critical question before the church, and that is the whole issue of medical ethics, bioethics, and this alarming slippery slope down which we are already headed in many parts of the world and what we as the church need to be doing. A brief timeout back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Again, let me share information. If you'd like to get a copy of uh, one of Wesley Smith's best-selling books, Uh, one of the most apropos to our conversation today, is a book he wrote called Culture of Death, The Assault on Medical Ethics in America. That's available through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get more information about Wesley's blog, found at Secondhand Smoke. Details on his website at WesleyJSmith.com. We're talking about the whole question of bioethics today, and this alarming, um, frankly, slippery slope down which we seem to be headed, much of it justified by uh, a morphing of what had been um, a very firm bioethical foundations. So that all of a sudden is taking on the sort of this, the spirit of the greater good going on. Because after all, while the quality of one person's life might be diminishing, can't we uh, automatically help ourselves to those organs to improve the life of someone else's? And to a degree, as we were mentioning, Wes, just before the break, this idea of, of uh, basically playing God in some respects, is deciding who gets to live, who doesn't, and how we define the quality of life, up to and including suggesting that while someone might have a diminished capacity from a mental standpoint and yet still be fully functioning individual in every other
2: and, regard. And even seeking to redefine the meaning of death itself. So, so
1: with that in mind, then, what... Where is the medical divide? Are there any degrees of separation here left at all? Or is this, frankly, morally and ethically no different than the justification used by the Nazis as Dr. Mengele was doing his experiments on twins in Auschwitz in the 1940s?
2: First, this is not a done deal. And one of the reasons I work so hard uh, on my blog, on the articles and coming into studio like this is because the contest is on. There is a robust defense for the sanctity of human life. Uh, Places like uh, when I work at the Discovery Institute, the Center on Human Exceptionalism. So the lines
1: are not being drawn, have not been drawn yet, but they're heading in that direction. In other words, there's still time to reverse this.
2: Yes. And but people have to be aware of it. Much of what's going on in this quote unquote battle is happening above and beyond what the mainstream media covers in medical journals. I've read you an example. Here's another example. And by the way, think of what Pat Robertson said about Alzheimer's. They're being gone. You might as well uh, get a divorce and go on. And, And this is from the journal Nature. Few things are as sensitive as death, but concerns about the legal details of declaring death in someone who will never again be the person he or she was. That's exactly what Robertson said should be weighed against the value of giving a full and healthy life to someone who will die without a transplant. So you take Pat Robertson's statement about, well, you know, of course you want to get a different wife because she's gone. Your your wife is gone. She'll never be what she was. Now take that same attitude and move that into the concept of, well, gee, there might be somebody else who could use that liver more than the person. Well, therefore, uh, the, what was the difference between looking at your wife of sixty years
1: who's now eighty versus what she was when you got married when she was twenty and saying, well, she's never going to be twenty again? That's right. And so now uh, everything is permissible under the sun, you know. And, and yeah. I'm reminded that, that takes <laughs> but, me back to that one yeah. passage, Proverbs fourteen twelve. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Now of course in this case the psalmist is referring to spiritual death, but apparently now in this application it's also lethal.
2: So you have you have this utilitarian agenda you do have places like the center for bioethics and culture jennifer lawl uh, i've Good been friend. with you uh, mm-hmm. in, in studio with her before i'm a special consultant to them fighting this agenda you have the patients rights council rita marker who got me involved in these issues fighting assisted suicide fighting this agenda the center on human exceptionalism at the discovery institute fighting this agenda agenda the center for bioethics and human dignity out of uh, illinois uh, trinity um, uh, fighting this agenda the problem is a lot of people don't believe when I, I'm sure there are people on the road listening to us in rush hour and they're saying, no, it's not happening. Makes for a great it's, radio, but this, this is, can't be this true. This is just bl- yeah. I have not exaggerated anything, but I I'm not saying it has become a done deal. I am saying that unless people engage and say, no, we stand for the sanctity and dignity of human life, even sometimes when we might not benefit in terms of of how we might, should we violate that principle, then we can prevail. The more we talk about this in the public, we can prevail. The more we refuse to go along with the uh, the changing of the lexicon, such as aid in dying instead of assisted suicide, we can prevail. The more we speak to, let, let's say you're walking down the street and your friend looks at a, somebody in a wheelchair across the street and said, you know, if I were like that, I'd go to Kevorkian. What a great moment, an opportunity for educating and letting people, nobody is worth going to Kevorkian, nobody is Kevorkian bait, and that person enjoys the same dignity as you or I do. What a per- tremendous opportunity to, uh, to educate and help persuade. Is
1: this a case where we have to force people then to, uh, Wesley, to be clear about what they really mean when they will grab uh, certain key phrases, the modification, the morphing of the yes. lexicon, as we've discussed? I mean, for, for example, if a physician talks about, in the case of what's uh, happening is this, this large paradigm shift in the UK, this push for so-called presumed consent, Uh, to which every patient is automatically a donor unless they opt out. Um, Where, to me, the person that's lying in the hospital bed is my brother, my father, my son, but to a physician, they're just a source of spare parts. Do we have to force people to be clear about what they're talking about here so that they don't hide behind the ability of morphing the language?
2: Yes, and we also have to be careful not to accuse physicians as yet being in that place. The contest is on in the healthcare system. There are a lot of physicians and nurses fighting against these agendas, fighting desperately against these agendas. We have to not uh, throw them into the same category and that's fair yeah.
1: but 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 let's also be clear here. We know for a fact as we sit at this table that this is going on in some countries, maybe not the u k maybe not in the westernized part of the world, but in China, for example, there is active organ harvesting taking place, up to and including the point where if somebody needs a few extra bucks, you've got two kidneys, sell one, a doctor will be happy to harvest it from you, look at the great job you're going to do, all wrapped up in in the altruistic goal of helping somebody else.
2: I call that biological colonialism. And you have uh, rich people from the West going to places like China, paying $100,000 for a liver, which means somebody's going to be murdered, tissue-type first and then murdered, probably a Falun Gong or political Mm -hmm. prisoner, Murdered so you can have your liver. Well, we're back and, to the science of eugenics. Yes. I value my life more than yours, right? But and you have uh, you had the Philippines that had to pass a law saying because of the because of organ purchasing purchasing of kidneys living kidneys, living people. You had they passed a law saying nobody from outside the Philippines can have an organ transplant in the Philippines. Why is that happening? Because people from our country are colonizing the human body as if uh, it were a natural resource. And what we have to do, I think, is stop justifying people when they want to do things that aren't right and start helping them do things that are right. Uh, For example, um, IVF. Let's say that a a woman gets pregnant and uh, through IVF and there are three fetuses. We hear of, well, you should have a selective reduction. That's another one of those word games meaning an abortion. I've heard uh, bioethicists say, well, we can turn triplets into twins. No, you're turning Uh, triplets into two triplets and one dead triplet. Uh, We have to help people do the right thing, even though sometimes doing the right thing is the painful thing. So there has to be a clear
1: delineation then to understand that just
2: because it might be technically or medically feasible or legal or legal does not make it ethically expedient. That's right. And uh, I think there is a tendency, a natural tendency among all of us. And I think part of it comes from Oprah Winfrey. Anything you do, you're supposed to feel good about yourself. I don't think we do each other a favor, though, when something might make us feel good about ourselves if it's morally wrong. And I think what we have to do is encourage each other and carry each other's burdens and pains, because sometimes doing the right thing will be the painful thing. Well, and as we know, from both a, a scriptural context, as we understand, just a life
1: context, that um, uh, pain or guilt is there for a reason. If I put my <laughs> yeah. hand on top of the stove and I feel pain, that's a warning sign to withdraw my hand immediately. Otherwise, I'm going to potentially suffer irreparable harm to my hand. Likewise, if you're engaging in a behavior that you feel guilty about, don't don't buy into the lie of of those like an Oprah Winfrey that would suggest that, well, what's wrong about this is the fact that you're feeling guilt. Just dispense with the guilt and go ahead and do it feel good about it. No, right. that
2: guilt is there for a reason. And I think we should try to not have a sense of entitlement to everything we want. I think we can strive for what we want so long as it's ethical and moral. But there are lines. Uh, adultery is an easy one. You know, I might see that 25 year old girl going down the woman, young woman going down the street, and think, "Gee, I'd like to be with that young woman. I'm married. I can't do that. And that same, and that's pretty easy to understand, but uh, even though... <laughs> I would say it's
1: easy to understand unless you're Pat Robertson, because I would look at the same thing and say, what is the moral equivalent of that versus looking at your wife who's dealing with Alzheimer's and saying, well, she isn't today what she used to be, and therefore I'm so suddenly allowed to uh, to divorce her and go and marry a younger, healthier woman because in the definition of Pat Robertson, she's gone. I mean, doesn't that come under the same definition of doing whatever gives me pleasure without I, regard to the consequences?
2: I, I don't see any distinction. It seemed to me that Pat Robertson was saying, yes, go out and commit adultery because your wife is no longer the woman she once was. And he he got rightfully, as I recall, into a great deal of trouble over that. I'm not even sure to this day, though he understands why. Uh, but that's beside the point. I, I, I I'm Talking now about what might happen in the future, and and I think in order to do the right and ethical things, you have to be prepared ahead of time. What if there is a uh, treatment for um, diabetes for children with embryonic stem cell research, and your daughter has diabetes, and the doctor says, I can use embryonic stem cell therapy to help your daughter. And you know that that came from destroying human embryos to obtain this this, uh, treatment. Are you going to take it or aren't you going to take it? What if you find that uh, if uh, we kill grandma uh, for her uh, through euthanasia, we will be able to actually inherit $300,000, whereas if we allowed her to live out her life with proper treatment, we might inherit $50,000. What are we going to do? These are the kind of dilemmas that we are going to face. And just think if you're in the medical uh, uh, professions, what if... uh, Assisted suicide becomes legal and they say under Obamacare, which could happen, it must be covered by health insurance. What is the church going to do in terms of of their health insurance policies? Because if the federal government can tell you that you have to cover birth control if you're a catholic organization they can tell any organization if assisted suicide becomes legal that it has to be covered as well Well, certainly they're looking at the breadth and depth of life and pray the Sure. let's pause on that point we'll come
1: back with some closing thoughts with me today in studio is wesley smith senior fellow at the discovery institute more of our conversation as this edition of lifeline continues
0: and now back to lifeline with craig roberts
1: Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Our visit today with Wesley Smith, Senior Fellow at the Discovery Institute, continues. Wesley's book, by the way, Culture of Death, The Assault on Medical Ethics in America, available through Amazon.com. As well, you can get more information through his website. Information, too, on his blog, found at Secondhand Smoke. Details online at WesleyJSmith.com. That's wesleyjsmith. We're talking about a a very troubling paradigm shift that's happening in the medical community. It's happening certainly at the level at which uh, the services that are provided by physicians are being paid for. Uh, For example, what's happening in nationalized health care in countries like Britain, the shift that we see taking place in the same direction here in our own nation, we're suddenly now motivated by concerns over lacks of resources, whether it's an issue of living longer, living healthier, um, living safer, and therefore not having as many organs at our disposal to transplant into other individuals, or simply saying we only have so much money, so we have to somehow come up with a yardstick by which we measure who gets the money for one treatment and who does not. All of a sudden now we're seeing a massive erosion of what had been the foundation of ethics in America, and it's—I would seem too, Wesley—that a big part of this is seeing a the slow erosion of what had been the the guiding light, so to speak, the moral compass of America, the Judeo-Christian ethic. Absolutely, that said to us that life has an intrinsic value, not comma if, but rather life has value.
2: Period. We that hold period these. Been, we hold these truths. Yeah. It's been changed from a period to a comma it's been changed to, to a comma and there is a great deal of persuasion to get people to say that life doesn't necessarily have uh, value. Moreover that human life as a value itself is irrelevant. What matters is certain capacities. So in the animal rights movement, uh, which I believe we've talked about um, it isn't the being human is not what gives value. It's the ability to feel pain. Now this is not animal welfare, but animal rights. And so PETA, brought that lawsuit against SeaWorld trying to declare whales to be slaves. Why? Because in in that tech, that uh, belief system there is no moral distinction between whales and cows and squirrels and people. Uh, in uh, uh, some radical environmental groups human beings are not only not uh, uniquely valuable. We're the villains of the planet. We're the AIDS afflicting planet Earth. And so we have become, uh, look at that movie, um, The Day the Earth Stood Still, the remake, starring Keanu Reeves. In the original version from the 50s, Michael Rennie, the alien came down to Earth to save people from themselves. In the Keenau Reeves remake, the alien came down to Earth to commit total genocide to save the Earth. And that was an A-list Hollywood movie. That was the, 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 so there are anti-human agendas. Humanism is morphing into anti-humanism. The concept of human exceptionalism is being disdained and attacked. The sanctity of human life is being discarded. If the church falls prey to this, and I don't think it will, but realize the church, how did the church begin to gain uh, credibility in ancient Rome? It was rescuing babies exposed on hills and raising those children as their own. It was nurturing and caring for the poor. We uh, Christians showed ourselves to be a different ethic from the reigning pagan culture, which was very harsh.
1: And that ethic, that value, was not extended exclusively to ourselves and
2: our own camp, but extended beyond our borders. And and look at the Sisters of uh, of Missionaries of Mercy, the Mother Teresa's group. They had an AIDS hospice during the height of the AIDS uh, epidemic here in San Francisco, and I moved to San Francisco in 1992. It was horrible to see. What a catastrophe for those young men. The Sisters of Missionaries of Mercy took them all in comers, Catholic or non-Catholic, that's what Christianity is. And yet, under this new Obamacare rule, the missionaries of mercy, because they weren't restricting their care to Catholics, would have to cover contraception in the nuns' health care plan.
1: Obviously, we're in a, a very critical position right now. We're, we're, at, a, we're at a crossroads where... Our action or inaction is, is really going to determine the direction of our nation, of our planet, uh, forever to come. In, in a few moments, if you would, as our time winds down this afternoon, Wes, give us some insights in terms of what needs to be the, the marching orders here for the Church.
2: I think, uh, and you would know the Scripture uh, where to find this, but when in the separation of the goats and the sheep. Mm-hmm. I was hungry, and you fed me. Mm-hmm. I was in prison, and you visited me. I was sick, and you cared for me. This is a paraphrase. Uh, and when did we do this, Lord? When you did that to the least of me, you did it on uh, my brothers. You did it onto me. That good. That whole um, discourse really focuses me. If we end up in a place where we start discarding people, we could end up on the other side of that equation. I was sick and you killed me. Mm. I was old and you abandoned me. When did we do that onto you, Lord? When you did that onto the list of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it onto me. That for the church is a clear dividing line. It takes us back again in that
1: passage of Matthew 25 to what we saw demonstrated in the dangerous slippery slope that took place in Nazi Germany. We made references to this earlier on in our conversation today, uh, that when they came for the Jews, I wasn't a Jew, so I said nothing. When they came for, and we just ticked off the list of individuals, they came for the communists, I wasn't a communist, so I did nothing. When they came for me, there was no one left to speak up for me.
2: But we also have to be careful not to say uh, this is Nazis, because people will look around and say, "Wait a minute, we're not se- seeking Heil and we're not setting up death camps." And yes. and yet, and the the things the Nazis did in terms of the medical uh, Holocaust, the sterilizations, three hundred forty thousand people involuntarily sterilized in Germany. That came from the law of California, our euthanasia our sorry eugenics law. The uh, the medical holocaust of the euthanasia murders of the disabled babies and the uh, the disabled adults under the T4 program, Tiergarten 4, that was not being forced by the Nazis. That was doctors doing it because they wanted to do it. And advocacy for that began with a book called Permission to Destroy Life Unworthy of Life by a lawyer and a doctor, Alfred Hoch and Carl Binding, back in 1920, before anybody had ever heard of Adolf Hitler. By 1927, a majority, according to polling, a majority of parents of disabled children thought it would be okay for doctors to kill them. There was that kind of push in the 20s, long before Hitler adopted some of these policies as his own. So this isn't less
1: than to say, let's take action so it doesn't happen. The reality here is, let's take action so it doesn't happen
2: again. Yes, and also realize that it isn't just the Nazis, that people who are nothing like Nazis can fall into this well, if they reject the concept of the intrinsic dignity and exceptionalism and value of human life. Once you say some lives have greater value than others, particularly in the healthcare context, you start down a logical road. We are a logical species. We will go where our principles take us. And if we say that Grandma Jones has less value because she has Alzheimer's than Wesley Smith, then we have started down a terrible road that can end in exploitation, oppression, and killing. And as we
1: delineated earlier, this is not something that might begin happening. It's already a contested issue. It's already a debate within the medical community in Great Britain. And And here. And here, too. And
2: here, debate, not actual happening, but debate. Get more information, get
1: educated, get involved. Details, again, on the web. Wesley's got all kinds of great resources available. Just go to WesleyJSmith.com. That's WesleyJSmith.com. And, Wes, is always, we appreciate the time and the insights.
2: Now you see why I'm so much fun at parties.
1: <laughs> Thanks again, Wes. Thanks.
0: Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications. All rights reserved.